When a church is choosing a new senior pastor, there's often a candidating weekend in which the congregation gets to meet the pastor and the family, and then the pastor preaches, uh, the candidate preaches on Sunday morning, and then maybe there's a vote in the afternoon. And while this, uh, we haven't had a traditional candidating weekend, so to speak, here's been more like a candidating month, I was thinking that since this is the last day of the candidating month since the vote is this afternoon. Um, I suppose this makes this my candidating sermon. So the way I went about it is to think through, you know, what what scripture text do I think uh, our church family at this particular moment in the life of our church needs to hear? And so that's how I went about selecting this one. Let's pray together. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad now. Let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. If you are part of the congregation and you watched any of the candidating videos over the last month, you probably heard me talk about this idea of exile, that we're in exile. To be a little bit more concrete about that, what I mean is that maybe 30 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago, things were different, even here on the North Shore. Um, You could expect back then, that there would be some level of um, respectability about being a church-going Christian, right? By no means was Deerfield or Northbrook or Highland Park or Glencoe or any of these areas an overtly Christian place back then. However, if somebody found out that you were a church-going Christian, you might reasonably expect to hear something like, oh, that's not for me, but that's good for you, though, right? Or, Or maybe even sometimes you'd hear, I really should go to church more. Now, the moment that we're in, there's less and less polite respect that we get for being church-going Christians and more and more open disdain. Uh, The problem that people see with Christianity now is not so much that we're quaint or outdated, like maybe what they used to think, but now it's more that we're bigoted and backwards. Um, Maybe before, our conversations were about how we were perceived to be annoying because we're so moral. Now, it's more the conversation is about whether we're dangerous because we're immoral as Christians. Immoral because of our bigoted beliefs. As a result, increasingly, we're finding ourselves in the experience of exiles. Exiles being people who at one time lived in a place where they felt like insiders and now live in a place where they have been squeezed to the outside. Now, should we ever have felt like insiders here in America on this earth? I don't think so. Actually, I think what the Bible teaches is that we've always been exiles. I mean, Just to give a couple examples, in Hebrews 11, um, the writer is talking about some Old Testament saints before Jesus lived. He goes on this list talking about Enoch and Abraham and Sarah. And then here's how he sums it up. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And he commends them for this, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So God's people before Jesus, when living faithfully, were seeing themselves as exiles. What about after Jesus? Well, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, after Jesus dies and rises again and ascends into heaven, writes this letter to Christians scattered all over several nations. 
And here's how he addresses us Christians scattered. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. And he frames this whole letter that way, you know, grounding some of the exhortations that he gives on the idea that these people that he's writing to are exiles in the world. In other words, God's people before Jesus, during the time of Jesus, after Jesus, have almost always been exiles in whatever societies they found themselves in. What's unique about our particular moment then isn't necessarily that we're exiles. It's more that maybe for the first time in some of our lives, we're starting to really experience the exile that the Bible has always said has been true of us. It's an experiential understanding for us now. Now, when the writer of the Hebrews and when Peter pick up this idea and use this term exiles, they're not just thinking in the abstract. They have in mind the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament that they're steeped in, a concrete picture of what the life of exiles was like and how they tried to faithfully live for God in that season. So, we've been seeing some of that recently as we walk through Isaiah, the early chapters of Isaiah, haven't we? Isaiah has been writing to a people who will soon be in exile, preparing them for that time. This morning, I want to take a pause from our Isaiah series and fast forward a hundred years plus uh, into the book of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is another prophet writing to people who already are in exile. The exile has already happened. They've already been removed from their homeland, taken from Jerusalem to exile in Babylon. And I think this passage is going to be especially instructive for us in our particular moment. So would you turn there with me to Jeremiah chapter 29? We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 7. While you're turning there, just a little bit more background. At this time, the exile has begun for God's people, the people of Judah. They've taken the first wave of exiles out of Jerusalem into Babylon. This is the Chaldeans who were in charge in Babylon at the time. They were smart about it. They knew that if you wanted to annihilate a people a people group, you don't oppress them or enslave them because then they get angry and rise up eventually. What the Babylonians had decided was the best way to go about it is you assimilate them into your culture. So what they would do whenever they conquered a different people group is they would take the best and the brightest, the cream of the crop, and they'd pull them out of their homeland and transplant them into Babylon, give them really cushy jobs, uh, a lot of responsibility, a lot of respect and status in society, all in exchange for just adopting the way of life of Babylon. And then over time, eventually, that people group that once was a distinct people group now just dissolves into the whole of Babylonian society. That's what they're trying to do with the Jewish people. Many Jewish people in the time of Jeremiah 29 were still back in Jerusalem, but the first wave has been taken out. The cream of the crop, so to speak. The people with the marketable skills. They're now in Babylon, and they're trying to figure out how do we live in this place that's not our home. I want you to imagine that for a moment before we look at the text. Imagine that you've been ripped away from the place that you've, the only place you've ever known, and you found yourself in a place where the language is unintelligible to you, where the culture is confusing where the behavior of your neighbors is despicable to you based on what you've grown up with in the Jewish faith. And now you're asking questions like, how long are we going to be stuck here? How are we supposed to live while we're here? Is God even listening anymore? That's when a letter arrives from Jeremiah 
Jeremiah is back home in Jerusalem, and he's written a letter to the exiles in Babylon. And that's the letter that we're going to look at. I want you to listen, follow along as we read it, verses 4 through 7 of chapter 29. And think about what you'd be experiencing in your mind and heart as an exile when this letter is read to you. The text of the letter starts in verse 4. I'll start there. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. The chapter goes on. Verse 11 is the key verse in the chapter. You've seen it probably. uh, It's a favorite Instagram verse for Christian Instagram. Um, Talking about how God has not abandoned his people. He has not forgotten his people. He has a purpose for his people. That is the main point of this letter in chapter 29. uh, That God has a good plan. But in light of that main point, I want us to take a look this morning in our brief time together at three ways in which God wants to shift the attitude and mindset of the exiles in verses 4 through 7. I think he wants to move them from resistance to submission from refugees to residents, and from mourners to missionaries. Those three movements. So we'll take each of those in turn, and each, at each point along the way, I want us to stop and just reflect for a moment uh, what all this means for this church situated here at Lake Cook and Waukegan during the next chapter in its history. So first, uh, resistance to submission. From resistance to submission. We happen to be living in a cultural moment right now, I don't know if you've noticed this, I hadn't noticed it until recently, in which every group of people, you can even think of political interest groups, every political interest group frames their case as a resistance to exile. Here's what I mean. They don't use that language of exile, but here's how you might hear it. Justice is on our side, some say. Because we've been denied a seat at the table for so long, and it's, that's exile language, right? Being denied a seat at the table. And now it's time we had our seat at the table. And then those on the other side are saying, no, justice is on our side because this is our table that we've been sitting at for a long time, and you're trying to remove my seat at the table. Exile language, right? Almost every group of people in our world today, in our nation, is framing their existence in terms of resistance to an exile. And the exiles in Jeremiah's day were pulled toward a similar belief. But for them, it wasn't just this abstract idea that justice is on our side. They had reason to believe that God himself, the God of justice, was on their side. After all, doesn't the Bible promise that God will bless his chosen people as they worship at the temple where his presence dwells in the holy city that he's put his name on? And so these exiles who have been taken into Babylon are saying, you can't treat God's people this way to take us out of our homeland. And they want to resist being there. And the false prophets are fueling this sentiment. If we would flip back to chapter 28, we'd see uh, that false prophets, one after another, are saying to the exiles, don't worry, don't worry, it'll just be a short time in exile. Two years max, then you'll be back home. Don't get too settled in there. 
God doesn't want this exile. He's going to bring you back home again. Then in our passage, chapter 29, God himself speaks. Did you notice that in verse 4? That yes, the letter's from Jeremiah, according to verse 1, but it's really the words of the Lord through the pen of Jeremiah. Verse 4, and what does God say about who sent Israel into exile? I'm looking at verse 4, and I'm looking at verse 7. He says it twice. We would think he would say, Nebuchadnezzar sent you into exile, right? Because that's what the whole story has been up to this point. Nebuchadnezzar raised up armies to conquer the people of Judah and take them into exile, but God doesn't say it that way. God says in verse 4, I have sent you into exile. Verse 7, I have sent you into exile. So who is it? Did Nebuchadnezzar send God's people into exile or did God send God's people into exile? Yes, right? (laughs) The answer is yes. Um, Sure, it was through the direct action of Nebuchadnezzar that the people were taken into exile, but not even someone as mighty as King Nebuchadnezzar, according to what the Bible teaches, can act outside the sovereignty of our God. In other words, even the most powerful person on earth can't do a single thing that the Lord doesn't allow. And so, in a very real sense, it is God who sent them into exile. But that has an implication, doesn't it? If I'm here as an exile in Babylon reading this letter, and I hear, wait, God sent me into exile, the implication is that if I resist my exile, I'm resisting God. Now, to resist my exile is to resist God. A better thing to do would be to submit to the God who sent me here. Now, it's one thing when we're thinking about past events to say, yes, God is sovereign over everything. These people would have been able to do that when they thought back on maybe slavery in Egypt. They would have said, yeah, that was a bad thing, but look how God was sovereign over it and he was accomplishing his purposes through our slavery in Egypt. That's one thing with past events. It's a lot harder to do when it's in your present circumstances, right? It's a lot harder in our present moment to see what God's doing and the affliction that he's allowing in our lives right here and now and say, that's God that did that. That's God that's doing that. That's God that's allowing me to go through that. It's his hand at work. But that's exactly what God is pushing them to do here. And I think we can maybe just take it right now to our own situation, our own present events here in 2019. If this is true, that nothing happens, nobody's taken into exile apart from the sovereignty of God, then... To the extent that we find ourselves in exile of some sort here on the North Shore in 2019, the message for us is that we didn't get into exile because of any election gone wrong. We didn't get into exile because of any pride rallies. We didn't get into exile because of any court rulings. We got into exile ultimately because our God put us into exile, placed us as exiles here. That changes my heart posture. I don't know about you. It shifts the way I think and feel about my situation from thinking this must be a mistake that I'm being treated this way as a Christian in this world to thinking God must have a reason for allowing me to be treated this way as a Christian in this world. It moves me in my heart from resisting exile to submitting to the God who put me in exile. Now, does that mean 
that we never avail ourselves of our rights as Christians? Does that mean that we never fight for religious freedom, for example? I think the answer from Scripture is no. It doesn't mean that. Paul, who saw himself as an exile, nevertheless, at times, availed himself of his rights as a Roman citizen, and we might well do the same. I'm not advocating for some sort of defeatism here. What I'm drawing our attention to is our hearts. What's going on in your heart as you find yourself in exile, as you find yourself increasingly ostracized in this world for being a Christian? Is it a heart posture of resistance, or is it a heart posture of submission to the God who has put you in this situation? Maybe just one concrete example would just help you think through uh, what I'm talking about or help me help understand. Um, as my sons grow up and go to elementary school, there might very well be a day in which some of the teachings at their elementary school will become so extreme and so far from what we believe as Christians that I may actually avail myself of my right to go sit down with some of the leaders of that school and plead for an opportunity to opt out of certain teaching moments in the life of my students. That might be something that I do. However, if I do that, it will be with a heart not of defiant indignancy, resisting my exile here, but rather one that's submitted to the God who's put me into this exile. So what if they say no? What if they say no? Your son has to be here and has to sit through this. Well, I don't know what I'll do. I know what I won't do. I won't storm out defiantly as if something has been taken from me that was owed to me. It won't be that. I'll grieve it, but I'll also accept it as something that God has ordained for this moment in my life, and then our family will sit down and talk about what to do next given the circumstances. I'm talking about a heart posture, one of submission, not resistance. So first movement from resistance to submission, then from refugees to residents. Refugees to residents. Sarah and I moved from Florida to Chicago in 2013. When we first moved up here, um, I was determined not to get a winter coat. Here was my reasoning. Um, I'm only going to be here three years for seminary. Winter coats are expensive. That's a long-term decision. I'm not here for the long term. I, three, what's three years? I can make it, right? But if anybody, any of you remember that winter of 2013, you know how that worked out. I, I was miserable um, until I finally gave in and said, you know what, I, I, I had to accept, you know, I need a coat. Um, I think the exiles in Babylon, it seems like they're experiencing something similar. Uh, according to what we see here in verses 4 through 7 and then the chapters surrounding, they were saying things like, we're not making any long-term decisions here. We're here as refugees. And as refugees, they were thinking the way it's normal for refugees to think, let's get back home to the sort of home that we remember as quickly as we can and spend as little time in this strange place as we need to. Um, I think we see that as their initial mindset here in chapter 29. And as such, there's at least three options for them regarding their relationship to the city of Babylon. Number one, uh, option A, fight the city. Let's take on Nebuchadnezzar, uh, revolt, try to get their freedom. That would be a bad idea. There weren't many of them. There were a lot of Babylonians. Number B, letter B, 
assimilate to the city. That's what the Babylonians wanted them to do. That's why the Babylonians were giving them these high jobs. They were giving them status. They were giving them everything they wanted so that they would just kind of embrace the values and practices of Babylon and become just like everybody else. Third option, withdraw from the city. It seems like this is what they were doing at the time this letter, uh, this letter came, came to be. Um, wait, uh, withdrawing from the city is like, let's wait it out in isolation, tribal isolation together. Let's participate in the life of the city to the absolute minimum degree necessary for our survival. But other than that, let's just huddle together with our fellow Jewish people as often as possible and wait out the storm. There's a fourth possibility that it doesn't seem like there's much evidence that they had considered until this letter came. But this fourth option is what the letter advocates for. We might call it distinctively engaging with the city. Distinctively engaging with the city. It's distinctive because on this paradigm, they remain the people of God. They don't assimilate to the city. But it's engaging because they're not withdrawn. They are participating in the life of the city in many ways uh, that other Babylonians did. They look very similar. Take a look at it in verses 5 and 6. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, have grandkids, multiply there, don't decrease. That's the sort of life that the rest of the people in Babylon are living who are thinking they're there for the long term, but it's exactly the sort of life that you don't live when you're thinking we're only going to be here for two years. You don't plant a garden in that situation. You don't get a winter coat. So, um, it's that sort of a life. Distinctive engagement. Let me make clear, though, though, it's not assimilation. As people who are a distinct minority in the city, they were called by God to draw lines in terms of how, how much they could look like their fellow Babylonian city dwellers, Right? Um, they had to draw those lines. And Daniel and friends, who we read about in the book of Daniel, are the perfect example of this. They are part of this first wave of exiles, it seems like. It's likely that they probably received this letter and read it. We don't know that for sure. Either way, they were perfect examples of living this out in that they were in Babylon, but they were not of Babylon. Right? When I say that they were in Babylon... I mean that when we read through the book of Daniel, we see that Daniel and his friends accepted many, life, many aspects of Babylonian life and culture. They accepted Babylonian names, right? They were renamed and they accepted that. They went to Babylonian schools, accepted that education. They took jobs within the Babylonian bureaucracy and did those jobs wholeheartedly. Still, despite being in Babylon, they were not of Babylon because at key moments, they drew lines in the sand and said, we can't go with you this far. So, when they're invited to eat the king's meat, which would have indicated covenant loyalty to the king, they said, just give us vegetables. When they were supposed to bow down to the big golden statue, they said, no, not going with you there. When they said, you can only pray to the king... Daniel kept on praying to his God three times a day, but now he threw open the windows so everybody could see, right? At key moments, when their faith called for it, they, remained their, they kept their distinctiveness from the city. They drew lines and said, we cannot go with you this far. That's what, that's what I'm talking about with distinct 
engagement. They were very involved in the life of Babylon, but they preserved their distinctiveness even publicly at points at which their faith required them to do so. My question is, what if North Sub increasingly became that sort of a church? What if that became our reputation increasingly here in Deerfield, in Northbrook, in Highland Park, in Glencoe, in the surrounding areas? What if we were a sort of people who people said, those people aren't that weird, except when their faith requires them to be weird, right? Um, what if we were that sort of people? It's a third way. It's not losing our difference from society, but it's not being obsessed with our difference from society. It's actually a third way of using our difference from society to bless that very society that we find ourselves in. That's our second movement um, from refugees to residents. Now we go to the third, from mourners to missionaries. Mourners to missionaries. Another move I had was after sophomore year of high school, I moved from Pennsylvania to Michigan. Um, many of you moved during your school age years, and so you know one of the hardest things to navigate is how much do I prioritize keeping in touch with my old friends and how much do I lean into trying to make new friends in my new place. Right? And so I was definitely in the camp where I, I spent most of my junior year of high school in a new place but looking back to the old there was no, uh, we didn't have cell phones to text message back then, so it was AOL, Instant Messenger, back in the day. You guys don't know about that. Um, but that's, uh, so every night I'm on Instant Messenger, Instant Messaging my friends from back in Pennsylvania, and I, in hindsight, really missed out on a lot that junior year. I think that junior year, Tim Higgins, is a picture of what it looks like to be a mourner, but not a missionary. A mourner but not a missionary. Now, is it wrong to mourn while we're in exile? No, I don't think it is. Actually, I think there might be something wrong if we see the headlines that we see during this time in exile and we never mourn about it. It never moves us to tears. We should be grieved by many of the things happening in this world and many of the ways in which our world is rebelling against the God who loves us. However, the shift that I see here in verse 7 is a shift from being fundamentally mourners to being fundamentally missionaries. Right? Um, so a people who still mourn, but that mourning doesn't characterize us anymore. The specific wording of the missionary call in verse 7 has to do with actively participating and helping the city flourish. You see it there in verse 7, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That word welfare that comes up three times there is the word shalom, the Hebrew word shalom. We've talked about it before. Welfare is a pretty good translation for it because it's more than just our idea of peace, like absence of hostility. It's, it's, it's wholeness. It's complete flourishing in every aspect of life. It's uh, the idea of having nothing missing and nothing broken. Shalom. And the people reading this letter wouldn't have found it hard to swallow that they should be working for shalom. What would have been hard to swallow is that they're supposed to be working for the shalom of Babylon. Probably when they heard this letter read, they said, let me see that. That can't be what it, that can't be what it actually said. Right? Because the whole story of their Bible in many ways was going in just the opposite, of direct, opposite direction. Everything was chaos at Babel, 
but then comes to a place of peace and rest in Jerusalem. And now you're saying that God has transported us from Jerusalem back to Babylon to the place where they worship all sorts of other gods and live in rebellion against God. And you want us to work and pray for the shalom, the flourishing of that city? It didn't compute for many of them yet. That's exactly what God calls them to do, to pray for and to work for the shalom of Babylon. And why? Well, the reason is given in verse 7. Because Babylon's shalom will mean your shalom. And Daniel is a great example of this once again. As an exile in Babylon, he prays and prays and prays every day. Surely, part of what he was praying for was for Nebuchadnezzar and the following rulers of the city. Then one day the opportunity comes to minister to Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar's in need. And what is Daniel able to do in that moment after he's been praying for Nebuchadnezzar and for Nebuchadnezzar's flourishing his shalom time and time again? He's able to minister to Nebuchadnezzar in a way that demonstrates a genuine desire for Nebuchadnezzar's shalom, even though Nebuchadnezzar is the king who has ripped him out of his homeland. Daniel does that and brings glory to God even out of the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar as a result. And I suppose that's another piece of my hope for North Sub in our next season. That we would so be about the flourishing of Deerfield and Northbrook and Highland Park and Glencoe and the surrounding suburbs that our neighbors, even the ones that disagree with us, would say, you know what, one thing I can't deny, those Christians are for this community. They are for this community. And my hope is not just that that would be our reputation, but that it would be fueled by the shalom that was first given to us in Christ and that it would focus on a priority on the eternal shalom of our friends and neighbors, the sort of shalom that only comes from knowing the God who loved them and loved them so much to die for them. Here's what will get in the way of that. If our fundamental heart posture is one of mourning. Mourning maybe the way things were in the 90s or the 50s or whenever, whatever time in history we look back on and say that was a better time to be a Christian here in America. If we're stuck in that place of mourning, that will hold us back from embracing the mission that we've been called to. It'll be like junior year Tim Higgins who missed out on so much that junior year because my eyes were looking back on a time that had gone before instead of seeing what God had called me to in the new place where I was. So I think if we can do the hard thing of letting go of a past time that we look back on fondly, I think if we can step back and see the situation on the North Shore rightly that Really, for all intents and purposes, this is a mission field now. And we are missionaries who God has put here at a specific place in a specific time for a specific reason. Then, maybe we come to church on a Sunday morning, not looking to just kind of dip our toes into the waters of mission and see what it's like. But rather, we come to church on a Sunday morning after having been on a full-out sprint toward mission from Monday through Saturday, and we come to church on Sunday morning looking to have that mission refueled and redirected. So, a big idea from this text, from all that we've looked at, is this. Let's pursue shalom for the place where we find ourselves exiled. Let's pursue shalom 
for the place where we find ourselves exiled. I see this text, Jeremiah 29, as a key text helping us know how to live as the people of God in a new cultural situation that we're finding ourselves in increasingly in which we are no longer a respected majority but a minority who is irrelevant at best in people's eyes and despised more often. But friends, the good news is no instruction in Scripture, including this one, is ever given to us in a vacuum as though we're supposed to try to carry it out on our own strength. The message of Scripture isn't do this or any other command. It's this has been done in the person of Jesus. And the theme of exile that I hope we return to in the months to come is a theme that points back to Jesus just like every other major theme in Scripture. It points back to Jesus because think about this. Our Jesus that we love, he was the maker, creator of everything and of all of us. And he came to the earth that he made, the earth that he made that that should have embraced him as one of our own, right? Should have treated him as an insider. Yet his own, the ones he made and loved, rejected him, despised him, mocked him, beat him. And then when it all came down to it, they exiled him. Kicked him out of the city. Took him to a hill outside the city gate. Hung him up in the worst kind of exile they knew at the time, which was to expose him naked on a tree to be mocked by everyone. Jesus, our Savior, took that exile for you and for me, but that wasn't the worst of his exile, actually. The exile he was experiencing from the community in that moment on the cross was not the worst of the exile that he was experiencing on the cross. Scripture teaches that while Jesus was hanging on that cross, he was experiencing even a worse exile. Exile from the loving presence of God the Father, which is all he had ever known from eternity past. And instead, during those three hours as he hung on that cross, he saw the Father's frown for the first time as the Father exiled him from his loving presence. And what we see there at the cross is that our Jesus willingly was exiled from the city, from the loving presence of God, so that you and I could be brought in to an eternal city and into the eternal presence of God. It's that good news that I hope we return to time and time again during this season in exile. And I guess I do want to say that if I am blessed to become the senior pastor here, I hope that we are a place, not where people come to wait out the impending cultural storm, but rather a place where we are launched out from here, directly into the storm, in the midst of the storm, to join our Lord in exile and to draw on the power of his Holy Spirit to help us settle into exile faithfully, and to be a community who continually reminds each other of our future city to come that was purchased by the blood of Jesus, even as we work for the shalom of our present earthly city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for 
your providence. We thank you for your hand all over history. We thank you that nothing has ever happened to us or will ever happen to us that's outside of the scope of your sovereignty. So Lord, we ask that we would accept what you've placed us in during this time, during this moment, that we'd see it for what it is, and that we would joyfully lean into the mission you've called us to in a particular place, at a particular time, for a particular reason. In Jesus' name, amen.